Focus on Headline. And let's take a look at what major issues are making the headlines today on Focus on Headline. For this, joining us in the studio, we have our reporters in Cheongyein and Yoon Haejong. Guys, welcome back. Good evening. Good evening to you guys. We had President Yoon Seok-yeol taking part in a cabinet meeting on this Tuesday morning uh, where he sort of criticized North Korean leader Kim Jong-un for characterizing the relationship between the two Koreas as two states hostile to each other. Remember, Kim Jong-un went as far as to say that uh, they are a principal enemy uh, of North Korea. He also said that uh, they won't hesitate in I guess, uh, taking over South Korean territory in case of war. And this has been one of the strongest rhetoric so far from the North Korean leader. And uh, with this, President Yoon Seok-yeol uh, criticized it as being a regime that's a group that is anti-national and anti-historical. Yin, let's get more on this and what was addressed during the cabinet meeting earlier today. What do you have for us? Sure. So in the meeting that was held at the Yongsan presidential office this morning, uh, President Yoon made his point mentioning how the North Korean leader has defined inter-Korean relationship as a relationship between two hostile uh, nations, not as one of kinship. So this is Yoon's very first official response since Kim announced a fundamental revision of North Korea's approach against South Korea at the Workers' Party plenary meeting on December 30th last year, where Kim called the South a hostile belligerent, as well as Kim's remarks that came yesterday, which will be actually covered and uh, shared further by Hejong uh, later in our segment. So as we've seen uh, since the new year, uh, North Korea has been continuing provoca- provocative actions, including artillery fire, ballistic missile launch, and refusal of recognizing the Northern Limit Line, or NLL. Now, against this backdrop, President Yoon reiterated the principle of a strong response Response, referring to the actions as political provocations aimed at dividing the country. Now, on a related note, he also called for a warm embrace of North Korean defectors, sharing how the government is fully committed to help the defectors settle um, into the Korean society. He instructed the Unification Ministry to arrange a North Korean defector stay while asking the Foreign Ministry for a stronger cooperation with the international community to better protect the people. Now, President Yoon has also ordered swift measures to restore the domestic economy and eliminate welfare blind spots. In particular, he asked the National Assembly to approve a bill to suspend the application of the Serious Accident Punishment Act, which will be extended to workplaces with fewer than 50 employees from the uh, 27th, highlighting that uh, the law should allow more buffer time for small and uh, medium-sized companies before the regulation takes place. Now, when it comes to housing prices, Yoon pushed for the abolition of the residency requirement for homes with a price ceiling, explaining that many homebuyers who are struggling to pay their balance are being forced to break the law. He added, quote, reckless regulations are restricting people's freedom to relocate and exercise their property rights. Now, just kind of going back to the North Korea related issues here, remember uh, Kim Jong-un during their uh, parliamentary meeting, so to speak, uh, equivalent to South Korea's parliamentary <laughs> meeting, really went strong with the rhetorics. These are rhetorics that we normally saw from, let's say, Kim Yo-jung, uh, but uh, Kim Jong-un going as far as to once again that they would not hold back in taking South Korean territory in case of a war sort of seems like an invasion 
statement of invasion, something that uh, North Korea has long accused uh, South Korea and the U.S. of conducting. But nevertheless, uh, President Yoon Suk-yeon, one of the other things that he's also mentioned is that in case of another North Korean provocation against South Korea, that they will respond with what he said was like something like multiple times uh, harsher uh, response uh, is what he said. So not really backing down here is uh, President Yoon sung yeol uh, Moving on here, South Korea's finance minister Choi Sang-mok said on Tuesday that the government will administer more than 65% of this year's fiscal spending in the first half. Uh, this is a move to boost domestic demand and support vulnerable people. Hejong, let's get more on this. Right. During an emergency economic-related ministers meeting, finance minister Choi Sang-mok said it would be far from easy for the people to feel an economic recovery in the first half due to high inflation and interest rates. He added that the government will administer more than 65% of this year's budget, a record level in just the first half for projects on social welfare, job creation and social overhead capital. Last year, the cabinet approved the government's plan to front load up to 75% of fiscal spending for 2024. So out of 550 trillion won, uh, 412.5 trillion won, which is approximately 317.8 billion US dollars, would be spent during the January to June period. The government has vowed all-out efforts to prop up economic growth momentum and support low-income and other vulnerable people amid weak domestic demand, although the economy has shown signs of a turnaround led by rising exports. Meanwhile, in today's meeting, Finance Minister Che announced that the government decided to dispatch four vessels along European routes to provide extra container space for local exporters in response to the crisis in the Red Sea. Carriers have uh, rerouted away from the crucial Middle East route due to a wave of attacks by Iranian-backed Houthi militants based in Yemen, which has led to longer shipping times and the shortage of container storage spots at the ports. According to the finance minister, uh, geopolitical uncertainties have heightened in the Red Sea. Uh, though Korea has had no major issues in exports, including energy imports such as petroleum and natural gas. And the government also plans to strengthen logistics support for smaller companies. Let's move on here. A prosecutorial committee of outside experts has recommended that Seoul Metropolitan Police Agency Chief Kim Gang-ho uh, be indicted over the Itaewon crowd crush incident, the associated inadequate response. Now, Yane, uh, give us more details on what the committee had concluded from the seven-hour-long discussions on Monday. Yes, so the committee's decision uh, came after deliberations among its members, uh, where committee recommended prosecutors indict Kim Gwang-ho in a 926 decision. Uh, the committee, however, recommended against the indictment of former Yongsan Fire Station Chief Choi Sung-bum in a 1214 decision. Uh, the pro- uh, prosecutorial panel uh, was led by former Constitutional Court Justice Kang Iron, and it convened to examine the case at 
2 p.m. yesterday. The committee first heard from the prosecution team on the results of their investigation uh, and then moved on to listen to the perspectives of the suspect and victims, uh, respectively, and concluded their discussions extending past 9 p.m. So according to the families of the victims who took part in yesterday's session, the prosecution team stated that there was no obligation for exercising caution concerning the two individuals of the probe. So to give a brief legal explanation on the context of this here, uh, a charge of professional negligence resulting in death pertains to the punishment for negligence in performing duties that results in any harm or death. Now, this charge is typically applied to individuals with occupations where There is a risk to life uh, or physical well-being, such as police officers and firefighters. Now, those in such professions, uh, this means that they are legally obligated to exercise a high degree of caution, and failure to do so can lead to uh, penalties if harm or death occurs. So initially, there was widespread speculation that the committee will recommend non-indictment towards Chief Kim. However, contrary to this expectation, their conclusion on this day was that indicting Chief Kim is the appropriate course of action. All right, so interesting, two two different names that have come out so far, and uh, because it has been uh, well over a year since this uh, unfortunate incident has taken place, but there is one name that really stands out here, and that's the Yongsan Fire Station Chief Che Sang Bum. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you guys remember initially when they were listing a number of people that could be held responsible uh, for negligence and uh, the Itaewon crowd crash happening, uh, one of the there was a lot of finger pointing that was going back and forth, but if there was one person that many of the citizens agreed had nothing to do with all of this, and the fact that this particular person did all they can to try to help out the situation, it was the Yongsan Fire Chief in Chesangbam. And if you guys don't remember who he was, uh, we've seen a lot of interviews that were taking place all throughout the night. Because remember, this was happening late at night. Right. And all throughout, as they were doing different interviews, it was the uh, fire station chief Chesangmok who was doing all the interviews. He was up all night trying to uh, rescue help. Uh, lead the way in the rescuing as many people as possible. And you could tell that he was shaken uh, in all the interviews that were taking place. And so the public consensus was, listen, you can't blame him for what went wrong. I mean, it was not the fire department's fault for what happened. It's a lack of organization, lack of putting people in place, in uh, in crowd control, and so forth. And so still till this day, we have a lot of finger pointing going on. But what does this recommendation mean to the case? And should we expect the indictments to happen as recommended, though? So the operation guidelines of the prosecutorial meeting, a committee of outside experts, which is actually a part of the Supreme Prosecutor's Office regulations, says the lead prosecutor must respect uh, the deliberative, uh, deliberative op- opinions of the committee. However, strict adherence to these opinions is not really mandatory. Still, in this specific case of Itaewon Crowd Crush, there is a prevailing expectation that the input of the committee will be followed especially since Prosecutor General Lee Won-seok was himself the person who convened the committee after careful deliberation. Now, apparently, his decision was to made uh, was made to ensure the office comprehensively review external opinions as well from the perspective of the general public and have the legitimacy and fairness of the investigative procedures in place. 
Moreover, as there has been a known disagreement between the Supreme Prosecutor's Office and the Western District Prosecutor's Office, there is speculation that the prosecution team is less likely to go against the opinion proposed by the committee at this time. Now, the Western District Prosecutor's Office stated that they plan to meticulously analyze the evidence, factual circumstances, and legal aspects based on the investigation results as well as the recommendation before making their final decision. Now, if the office accepts the recommendation, the investigation related to the Itaewon tragedy would likely to conclude uh, with the indictment of Chief Kim, who is considered the de facto second-in-command within the police force. Again, we've also talk about, talked about how the, the main opposition DP was pushing for the, uh, the Itaewon Disaster Special Act, right, uh, mm-hmm. which I think called for further investigation into the matter. Uh, but unfortunately, that was uh, vetoed by the president. Uh, whether or not it's going to be pushed back uh, into uh, revote uh, is a big question. But uh, oh no, sorry, it wasn't vetoed. Check that. I want to apologize for that. Uh, they're considering. They're saying that the DP, uh, the PPP, is still considering whether or not they're going to recommend uh, the vetoing of that particular act. And so, considering the fact that it's a very, I guess, sensitive issue, I think even the ruling PPP and uh, President Yoon Suk-yeol, who has the veto power, is uh, treading very carefully uh, with that particular issue. Uh, We're going to be going back to talking about North Korea once again as we've uh, briefly mentioned uh, some of the statements that uh, North Korean leader Kim Jong-un has made. Uh, According to state media KCNA with Korean Central News Agency on Tuesday, its leader has called for revising the country's constitution to define North Korea as the number one hostile country. And this is a scary one here. Codify the commitment to completely occupying the South Korean territory in the event of a war. Uh, Hejun, let's get the latest updates on this. Right. On Monday, North Korean leader Kim Jong-un delivered a speech at the 14th Supreme People's Assembly held in Pyongyang. This uh, is a key parliamentary meeting, and here Kim called for drawing up legal measures to define South Korea not as a counterpart for reconciliation and unification. Now, the Supreme People's Assembly is the highest organ of state power under the North's constitution, but it actually only rubber stamps decisions by the ruling Workers' Party of Korea. Kim said that in the event of a war on the Korean Peninsula, it is important to take into account the issue of completely occupying, suppressing and reclaiming South Korea and subjugating it into the territory of North Korea. He called for stipulating in the Constitution that education programs should be strengthened to get North Koreans to consider South Korea as the number one hostile country and invariable principal enemy. Now, Kim's address comes about two weeks after he defined relations with South Korea as two states hostile to each other at a year-end party meeting. In line with Kim's new definition of the two Korea's ties, Pyongyang also decided to abolish three agencies meant to promote inter-Korean dialogue and cooperation. The bodies in question are the Committee for the Peaceful Reunification of the Country, the National Economic Cooperation Bureau, and the Kumgangsan International Tourism Administration. 
North Korea's cabinet and related organizations will take practical measures to implement the decision set by the Supreme People's Assembly. Meanwhile, at Monday's meeting, Kim also ordered uh, steps to dismantle remnants of the past that can be regarded as symbols for inter-Korean reconciliation. For instance, he ordered step-by-step measures to completely separate all connections between the two Koreas in border areas, such as the north side of the Gyeonggi land route. He also ordered the dismantling of the Arch of Reunification, which is a monument built in 2001 in Pyongyang to mark late founder Kim Il-sung's blueprint for federation system-based unification. And also touching on the North's uh, nuclear weapons, Kim reiterated his country will not avoid war, though it has no intention to unilaterally start an armed conflict unless they are provoked. You know what's uh, interesting about Kim Jong-un's comments about uh, taking reclaiming, again, reclaiming South Korean territory in case of a war breaks out, is two things. Number one, uh, by saying you're reclaiming South Korea, it means that initially it belonged to North mm-hmm. Korea. I mean, it was it was one Korea. We already know that it was uh, divided. Uh, even before the Korean War began, it was divided, actually. Uh, and so another thing is to say that, recla- remember, in the Korean North Korean history books, what they teach their people is that the Korean War began when the U.S. invaded North Korea, is what happened. But he kind of, I don't know if he forgot that they lied about that whole fact and saying because the whole invasion of North Korea is what led to the Korean War, right? So by saying reclaiming South Korea, they're going, well, we took over most of North Korea, uh, sorry, most of South Korea, where you had that little bubble of uh, Busan, right, at the initial stages of the Korean War, and uh, we're going to take back South Korea like we did it. It just kind of shows once again uh, that uh, it was North Korea that invaded South Korea uh, to start the Korean War. But uh, again, these these are scary comments that are coming out right now. It really shows you at uh, what kind of relations, uh, what kind of what kind of inter-Korean relations we're seeing at this moment. Uh, in the meantime, the Kremlin has announced its intention to enhance its cooperation with North Korea as a response to the official visit of North Korean Foreign Minister Choi Son-hee to Russia. Now, the statement was made during a briefing uh, indicating the Kremlin's commitment to advancing bilateral relations with North Korea on various fronts. Uh, let's get more on this. Of course. So Dmitry Paskov, the spokesperson for the Kremlin, stated on the 15th local time that North Korea is Russia's closest neighbor and a partner, and the country wants to develop a partnership with, uh, and and North Korea is the country that uh, Russia wants to develop a partnership with in all fields. He also continued to add that their dialogue with North Korea will continue at all levels going forward. Now, the North Korean delegation uh, led by Foreign Minister Choi Son-hee of North Korea is making an official visit to Russia until the 17th. While Choi was invited to Moscow by Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov, there is also a possibility of a meeting between President Vladimir Putin and uh, Foreign Minister Choi. The spokesperson explained that the meeting between Choi and Putin could serve as an opportunity to maybe announce the results of the North Korean Korea-Russia foreign minister talks scheduled today.
Now, Paskov's explanation was as to why the delegation is visiting Russia was that the countries will discuss the outcomes of the North Korea-Russia summit uh, that was held at the Russian Far East Vostosny uh, Cosmodrome in September last year. Now, regarding the acceptance of North Korean leader Kim Jong-un's invitation uh, to President Putin to visit North Korea during the previous summit, uh, the spokesperson explained specific details will be agreed upon through diplomatic channels. Now, although what uh, what had been discussed during the previous North Korea-Russia summit in 2022 were not disclosed, when asked about assisting North Korea in satellite development, Putin responded back then that that was actually why they visited the Cosmodrome. Amid the intensifying ties between North Korea and Russia, suspicions of arms trade uh, between the two countries persist in the West. But both Russia and North Korea deny these allegations. Yeah, so that's an interesting comment because a lot of experts were saying that although uh, Kim Jong-un and Vladimir Putin met at the Cosmodrome, uh, that indicated that there was going to be some sort of assistance from Russia in sending that uh, military satellite uh, into space. But a lot of experts were saying that it's just too short of a time in between the meeting between the two leaders and the successful launch of the military reconnaissance satellite. So how much help did they really get? Or is it based on, is it some of them were saying that that was kind of a cover, right? To make mm-hmm. everyone look like they're only talking about assistance in the satellite uh, launch. But in in actuality, they're probably talking about all the ammunitions that could potentially go to uh, Russia, all the ballistic missiles that could go to Russia and so forth in exchange. What does North Korea get? And that's what they talked about, apparently, is what they're saying. Uh, in the meantime, the U.S. and South Korea reportedly agreed to start early negotiations on the 12th Special Measures Agreement. Uh, this is the defense cost-sharing agreement where... Uh, I believe the uh, amount that South Korea is taking up is been, has been increasing over the past few years now. Uh, it's going to take effect starting in 2026. Hejong, let's get uh, the latest on this. Right. According to dip- uh, diplomatic sources today, the U.S. and South Korea have reached a consensus to begin negotiations for the 12th Special Measures Agreement sometime this year. Now, the SMA is an agreement that stipulates South Korea's share of the cost of stationing U.S. troops in South Korea. Seoul and Washington last concluded the 11th SMA back in 2021, which covered the six-year period from the year 2020 to 2025. It is unprecedented, though, for the two countries to already begin negotiations for the next SMA, considering that we all uh, have nearly two years before the 11th SMA is due to end in 2025. Uh, Political observers cite the possibility that this may be in anticipation of former President Donald Trump's re-election in the upcoming November presidential race. Because back during the Trump administration, negotiations for the 11th SMA took many twists and turns when then-President Trump raised questions about the alliance. Of course, this being South Korea uh, being a free rider and pressuring South Korea to significantly increase its contributions. Uh, The negotiations dragged on for a year and a half, leaving the agreement in limbo at one point. And an agreement was finally settled shortly after the U.S. transitioned to the Biden administration. Now, in that sense, it is possible that the two countries are trying to minimize the shock to the alliance by having a new SMA agreement set in place in advance 
even if Trump returns to power. However, it isn't clear whether the 12th SMA can be finalized within this year, according to diplomatic sources. Yeah, we. I, I remember this. Uh, this is where that uh, whole uh, remark, it's peanuts. Uh, South Korea is paying peanuts compared to, <laughs> you know, that, that's where it came from, really. They were saying that, you know, because we're paying billions of dollars and Trump is coming out because let's face it, right, before he became the U.S. president, he was a, he was a businessman. I mean, you could kind of argue whether he was a successful one or not, uh, considering the fact that many of his businesses did go bankrupt. But again, he's a businessman. And so money, money, money was what it was. And boy, it, th- there was no agreement in place. And I don't know what the actual figures, how much he was actually asking for, I forget. But it was just way too much. Uh, but although I believe once the Biden administration came uh, into uh, office, there was an increase. Uh, it was just that it was just a far less of an increase compared to what uh, President Trump at the time was asking for. So not surprising. They're trying to kind of come into an agreement be- just in case <laughs> Trump comes back into power once again. And uh, speaking of which, the first primary for the nomination of the Republican candidate for the November U.S. presidential election uh, began. You had uh, former President Donald Trump securing a landslide victory over in the Iowa caucuses. Uh, we had Interesting numbers. Uh, Yang, give us the numbers here that came out from the vote, and uh, what should we uh, expect moving forward here? Sure. So, in fact, Trump winning first place in uh, this Iowa caucus was more of a predetermined fact. Now, Mm. the real question was how many votes he would actually secure. So the last opinion poll before the result came out uh, had showed a support rate of 48 percent, which would have been uh, which which was actually the highest record in the history of the Iowa uh, Republican uh, primaries. And former President Bush, uh, his number was 41 percent. Now, on the evening of the 15th local time, and the caucus held across 1,657 presents, former President Trump secured the top position with 51% of the vote, as reported by CNN, based on 99% of the vote count. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis uh, received 21.2%, and former UN Ambassador Nikki Haley garnered 19.1%. Now, many have been questioning whether Trump would be able to secure more than 50 percent, mainly because the former president faces uh, multiple legal challenges right at this moment. As a candidate who must undergo legal scrutiny, if he doesn't have overwhelming voter support, his position in the upcoming presidential election could be quite unstable. Nevertheless, of course, uh, Trump brought home a landslide victory from the caucus, which took place amidst the coldest ever weather. So the high temperatures were below zero across much of the state and widespread wind chills in the minus 30 degrees Celsius, many of the road being in poor condition due to the heavy snow. Now, even even, uh, with this victory, the majority opinion is that there are still uncertainties remaining. Iowa has a very strong conservative base which makes the state naturally more advantageous for Donald Trump uh, in its demographics. But New Hampshire, on the other hand, uh, which is another upcoming primary, has a relatively high proportion of moderate voters and is now drawing much attention for how its primary turns out on the 23rd. Yeah, I was kind of uh, looking at the the 2020 uh, presidential election Mm -hmm. uh, where Iowa, uh, you did have... Mm -hmm. 
I believe uh, Donald Trump win that. Uh, Donald Trump did win Iowa. Iowa only has uh, six electoral votes, by the way. Uh, I'm not sure how close it was. Mm. Uh, but uh, nevertheless, I mean, <laughs> uh, the, I think the consensus is a lot of people thought that if it wasn't going to be Donald Trump, that it was going to be Ron DeSantis, although Ron DeSantis said a lot of very controversial room. He's like, they, they call him Trump 2.0 is what it is, <laughs> right? But then a lot of people are like, why have Trump 2.0 when you could have Trump, Trump. <laughs> so, so I, you're going to see Trump probably uh, windy the Republican uh, primary there uh, moving forward here. But uh, again, the way that things have gone and uh, what is it, Biden seeing uh, record low approval rating, there is a very good chance that uh, Trump might take back the office there. Uh, let's move on. Uh, Yemen's Houthi rebels vowing to target U.S. ships in the Red Sea, while Iran has also launched a missile strike on an Israeli intelligence agency in Iraq, uh, leading to heightened tensions in the region. Hedgen, let's get the latest situation in the Middle East. Right. According to the U.S. Central Command, on Monday, a ballistic missile fired by Houthi militants struck a U.S.-owned cargo ship, the Gibraltar Eagle, off the coast of Yemen. There were no reports of of injuries or significant damage, and the ship itself remained seaworthy, which means that it continued on its way as part of its voyage. The attacks show the Houthis' intention and apparent ability to continue their assaults on commercial shipping days after the U.S. and Britain began conducting airstrikes against the group aimed at deterring the maritime attacks. Because using missiles and drones, the Yemeni militants have carried out more than two dozen assaults in the Red Sea since the beginning of last November. And the Houthis themselves claimed responsibility for this attack. A Houthi spokesperson also emphasized that the group considers all ships from countries participating in military strikes against it, including the U.S. and Britain, to be legitimate targets. The U.S. and Britain in Operation Prosperity Guardian launched airstrikes on dozens of rebel bases in Yemen on December 12th and 13th, and the Houthis fired a missile at a U.S destroyer in the southern Red Sea on December 14th. British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak touted the success of the operation in a speech to Parliament, saying British forces had destroyed all 13 Houthi targets in the December 12th operation. He also declared that the UK could take part in further strikes against the Houthis. In the meantime, Western countries suspect Iran of spearheading the axis of resistance against the United States and Israel and of encouraging provocations by pro-Iranian proxies in the region, including the Houthis. Against this backdrop, uh, Iran, uh, Iranian military organization, the Revolutionary Guards, said yesterday that it destroyed a spy headquarters of the Israeli intelligence agency Mossad and terrorist organizations with a ballistic missile. The bombing took place in Erbil, the capital of Iraq's uh, northern Kurdistan region. Now, the Iranian strikes are believed to be in retaliation for the recent bombings in the country and in response to the U.S. bombing of the Houthi rebels in Yemen. Now, in response, the U.S. State Department released a statement saying that they strongly condemn the Iranian attack on Erbil and condemn Iran's reckless missile attacks that undermine the stability of Iraq. 
Let's now move on the World Economic Forum, aka the Davos Forum, as it's widely known as, uh, which brings together leading figures from the world's political, business, and academic communities to discuss issues of common concern to humanity. Uh, this kicked off today in the Swiss resorts of Davos, which is why it's called Davos Forum. Uh, Yane, let's get the latest on this. Of course. So the 54th edition of the forum began this morning with on-site registration for participating organizations. And the forum's founder and economist, uh, founder slash economist, Professor Klaus Schwab, uh, welcomed guests to the event this afternoon at the convention center. Uh, the Davos Forum is taking place in the midst of multiple simultaneous security crises. Uh, of course, the war in Ukraine, Israeli-Hamas conflict, and uh, as we uh, just covered, the escalating armed conflict in Yemen. Uh, there are evident reasons uh, why the security concerns of global leaders in Davos are bound to be prioritized. Climate change is also high on their agenda, utilizing AI as a tool for human prosperity while avoiding a global economic slowdown. The retreat of multilateral trade and the digital divide are also issues that leaders will discuss at the forum. The theme of the forum uh, this year is rebuilding trust with the aim of rebuilding it so that the international community can find a path to coexistence over these issues. Now, each country sent more than 60 leaders to the forum. South Korean Prime Minister Han Dok-su and French President Emmanuel Macron are among those who are making their trip to Davos. Uh, leaders of the parties to the conflict, uh, such as Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, as well as Israeli President uh, Isaac Herzog, also speak directly to the forum. Heads of UN agencies, including UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres, will be present, as well as representatives of IMF and NATO. Leading business figures uh, uh, such as Bill Gates and Sam Altman from uh, OpenAI, along with academics, central bank governors and ministers, will also gather to discuss issues. As in previous year, uh, the large, a large number of Korean business leaders are also expected to visit the events to interact with world leaders and explore uh, business opportunities. Rounding things out, it's uh, rare that we cover sports on uh, Focus on Headline, but I always love it <laughs> when our reporters do their best and try to sound like a sportscaster. We're going to take football because uh, South Korean men's football team uh, kicked off their AFC Asian Cup campaign uh, with a convincing 3-1 victory over Bahrain. Uh, this over in Doha on Monday. Uh, Hejung going to be our spokesperson today. Tell us, <laughs> tell us how the match went. Right, I'll do my best, although I'm not a huge sports fan. Uh, at the Sim Bin Hamad Stadium in Doha, South Korean midfielder Hwang Im-mom scored the first goal for Korea in the 38th minute before Bahrain equalized just six minutes into the second half. PSG star and midfielder Lee Gang-in restored South Korea's lead in the 56th minute with his left-footed strike just outside the box. Now, this came just five minutes after Bahrain drew even on Abdullah Al-Hashash's goal. 
Lee went to his left foot to make it 3-1 a dozen minutes later, faking out a defender to give himself some open space on the right side of the box before slotting the ball home to the bottom left corner. And throughout the match, Lee flashed his considerable uh, offensive skills. Uh, Throughout the game, Bahrain predictably established a strong defensive, and South Korea had difficulty getting anything going offensively against uh, such dogged and physical defending. Bodies flew left and right, though it was South Korea that picked up five yellow cards in total while trying to prevent uh, prevent Bahrain from mounting counterattacks, while two Bahraini players received yellow cards. The Korea team will need more of the same from Lee and the rest of their Europe-based attackers if they are to win their first Asian Cup since 1960. Now, next up for South Korea will be Jordan on Saturday for their second Group E match. The kickoff is 2.30 p.m. local time or 8.30 p.m. in Seoul time. Yeah, it's perfect for the uh, these fans here in South Korea because of the, the, the time difference here. Everyone's going to be able to check it out uh, after. Well, I mean, it's Saturday, so I guess it's not going to really matter. But no, who wants to watch football early in the afternoon, right? But seriously, though, I mean, there was big concerns because uh, Hwang Yi-chan of uh, Wolverhampton is uh, in- out injured, and so they're saying with the lack of him up front, uh, what's going to happen? Although Cho Gyu-sung, obviously, a very, as we've seen in the last World Cup, pretty good. But uh, Lee Gang is really stepping up right now. As you know, that uh, because Son Heung-min is like the world-class footballer, I think all the Bahraini players are focused on kind of closing out Son Heung-min, not thinking that there is another gentleman by the, uh, by the name of uh, Lee Gang-in, who, I mean, it, these were weren't like just lucky shots or like just close uh, quarter shots. I mean, these were like Lionel Messi-like goals that we're looking at. Maybe I kind of exaggerated <laughs> that, but uh, the first one certainly was. Great job, guys. Thank you very much for your reports today. As always, stay safe, stay healthy, and uh, we'll see you guys again. Thank you. You can listen to Korea Now with me, SJ Lee, by downloading the Arirang Radio application or tune in online by visiting www.arirangradio.com. So make sure you tune in Mondays through Fridays, 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. Korea time.